0: Collaborate with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Robohub podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Brad Hayes, Assistant Professor of Computer Science at the University of Colorado Boulder, who directs the university's Collaborative AI and Robotics Lab. The lab's work focuses on developing systems that can learn from and work with humans, from physical robots or machines to software systems or decision support tools so that together the human and system can achieve more than each could achieve on their own. Our interviewer Audro caught up with Dr Hayes to discuss why collaboration may at times be preferable to full autonomy and automation, how robots can learn from human demonstration, and the challenges of developing collaborative systems, including the importance of shared models and safety to allow adoption of such technologies in the future.
1: Hi, welcome to Robohub's podcast. Hey there. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. So, my name is Brad Hayes. I'm an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I direct the Collaborative AI and Robotics Lab. Would you tell me about what motivates your work? Absolutely. So, uh, as my lab is called the Collaborative AI and Robotics Lab, generally speaking, we are interested in developing systems that learn from and work with humans Uh, so these can be embodied or not so they they could be robotic systems or or, um, they can be things that just exist on your your computer or your your cell phone for things like decision support uh, with the general goal of providing something that is greater a team that's greater than the sum of its parts so you have this notion that robots or autonomous systems are very good at certain things and that humans are also very good at a certain set of things and that these things don't necessarily overlap And so if we are able to uh, come up with the technology that enables these to work together, then we should be able to accomplish something that neither one could necessarily do on their own. Mm
2: -hmm. Would you
1: tell me a bit about this collaboration where it's adding to it rather than replacing? Absolutely. So uh, there are a number of reasons why Uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to completely replace uh, human labor or, or human decision-making capability with automation so as i as i alluded to uh, there are things that humans are very good at that machines are not good at but even if we were able to produce machines that are, are competent or capable on the level of humans there are certain things that uh, would still potentially prohibit this technology from existing on its own be it things like cost or concern of reliability um, and so In general, we find it as a a much more realistic and uh, generally attractive option to develop this technology to coexist with people and to augment them rather than replace them.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Can you give me some examples? Absolutely. So in my lab, we're working on uh, a number of different projects, but I'd say a centralized theme of this, in addition to collaboration between humans and autonomous systems, is uh, how to, uh, enabling these this through the introduction of safety through shared expectations. So one of the big problems that we have facing us, with even with all the great successes in uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning that have come about recently, that we've been able to produce systems that might be competent, but they still surprise us a lot, or we're not really sure how they do what they do. Uh, not in the sense that it 's magic, but rather the fa- the fe- features that they 're using might not agree with our notion of what features are important to base a decision upon and all of this kind of leads down the road to having uh, this mismatch of expectations potentially and that 's where danger happens when your autonomous collaborator does something or potentially can do something that you don't necessarily agree with, with your mental model of the situation. And again, that can lead to potentially disastrous consequence. Mm-hmm. Just to make this more tangible, would you give me an example of this, how uh, a
2: mismatch and expectation could create a bad situation?
1: Absolutely. So uh, one example I like to talk about is with uh, autonomous vehicles and the social contracts that we make as drivers with, say, pedestrians. And so if you have an autonomous vehicle... Uh, and you are uh, on the road and you're a pedestrian, and you want to cross that street, Mm -hmm. if you had a standard vehicle piloted by a human, then you would potentially make eye contact with that human, you would engage in a social contract, they might wave you across, and then you would feel that you could safely cross the road because that other autonomous system, piloted by the human, uh, has engaged in this contract that you have an expectation about. You both share the same expectation about Now if we replace that vehicle with an autonomous vehicle, so you still have a human in the quote-unquote driver's seat, uh, you still have a pedestrian, and the pedestrian makes eye contact with the human, and the car might slow down because its model uh, isn't sure what's happening uh, with this pedestrian, and so it's maybe behaving a bit safer. And then the human would wave across the pedestrian, even though they're not actually controlling the system. And so the pedestrian has engaged in a social contract. Both parties have signed on according to the pedestrian's worldview. And then we don't know what that car is going to do because it wasn't actually part of that social contract anymore. right? So now there's no shared expectation and something disastrous could happen. Hmm. If, uh, let's say, the, uh, the vehicle loses track of that pedestrian and keeps going because it's on a road, it doesn't expect that to be there. Um, another example, a brief one from Lab would be, if uh, you're a graduate student, you're trying to show a robot how to do something, you're giving it example trajectories, uh, perhaps to, to pick up an object uh, and then place it somewhere else. You train that model, and then once you go to execute that model, there's a bit of a leap of faith moment where you're not quite sure what that robot's about to do. And if we had some way to convince the, the, uh, the graduate student in this scenario that the robot was going to do what they hoped it would, then we would say that we have a shared expectation about what's going on, and mm-hmm. this this system is just intrinsically safer than one that we didn't understand, one where we weren't sure what was going on with it. Hey, we gave it some data, we crunched that data into some model, and then we played it back, and oh my gosh, how did the robot uh, drive its arm through the table? Well, the grad student was standing right next to that. that could, they could have gotten really hurt. hmm so how did you come to this definition of
2: safety being shared expectation rather than anything else uh, and for example safe sets or something where they say this in the
1: state space is something we don't want to go into so I would say that um, safety is not exclusively shared expectation this is just <laughs> one uh, important component of that so um, even just defining uh, uh, safe operating regions and whatnot mm-hmm. right so things more in line with current generation safety hardware, uh, let's say in a manufacturing setting, things like light curtains that define uh, regions where uh, the robot is acting away from regions where the human might be interacting. Uh, these things are all important considerations, but what happens if the human doesn't know about these things? What happens if the human doesn't understand these things? Right Now there's a mismatch of expectation again, Right, uh, and so I, um, I would argue that... Uh, Safety is comprised of a lot of different things, but this is just one fairly important uh, aspect of this that is not immediately addressed just by the introduction of those those other safety systems. Mm -hmm. Gotcha.
2: Now, would you tell me a bit about
1: projects in your lab that have been around safety? Absolutely. So, one of the things that we're very interested in is uh, robot learning from demonstration. Mm -hmm. So, in general, we find that humans aren't always great programmers, and... Programming robots to do things is very difficult, time-consuming and expensive, and so we should enable subject matter experts to program the robots themselves, using, drawing upon their expertise to provide uh, uh, capable uh, you know, robot operators. Or, or do, to... you, do you mean, like, if my
2: robot is going to be in a rehabilitation home, that the physical therapist might program it. Is this what you mean?
1: Absolutely. So, um, Or in in a manufacturing context, I know very little about welding, but somebody who has been doing this their whole life will be a much more effective uh, instructor than I could ever be Mm -hmm. uh, in transmitting that information into a robot. Mm -hmm. And so we want to give that person the tools that they would need in order to give the robot that skill set. Anytime you're going through an intermediary, like one of us, a roboticist, then you're, we're extracting a toll, unless we also happen to be a subject matter expert as well in mm-hmm. that particular field. And so one of the things, though, as I mentioned, that's a sort of leap of faith moment that happens when you provide demonstration data into a model, uh, you train a model based on this, and then deploy that onto a robot, you're not really sure what's going to happen, especially if you're seeing initial conditions that weren't explicitly represented within your data. Mm -hmm. So now you're kind of at the mercy of your model. And now problems with our models are going to elicit physical consequences, right? So the stakes are much higher. Mm -hmm. And so the problem that we're trying to tackle within this space right now is how do we establish this shared uh, expectation within the realm of learning from demonstration or put another way How are we going to be able to show a human who's teaching a robot when the robot has actually captured the human's original intent? So a robot can learn a skill and we can ask the robot to play it back for us, uh, but the robot could be completely learning a different thing than we intended it to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's a huge risk and we'd like to be able to detect when that kind of thing is happening, provide the mechanisms that allow a human instructor to probe the robot's knowledge uh, to figure out what exactly has the robot learned, and is this satisfactorily generalizable?
2: Hmm. So how do you do that?
1: So one avenue that we've been exploring recently uh, is based on the notion that providing an example trajectory is extremely specific, but doesn't tell you much about the task itself. It's it's one example. And so if you were able to replicate it precisely, then great. You should be able to accomplish the task because you were given a good demonstration. Mm -hmm. But again, it's hard to generalize off of those pieces of information. Whereas if we contrast this with language, so if somebody's describing a task to you, then that tends to cover a very broad swath of the, uh, the task space, even at the expense of being maybe... Unable to, uh, to translate down to motor actions, for example. So uh, uh, one, one way to talk about this would be to take the example of pouring a pitcher of water into, uh, out into a cup. Mm-hmm. So if you were trying to describe to somebody how to do this, somebody who's never interacted with the world that doesn't benefit from the same lifetime of context and experience that we do, then you're very quickly going to get tired of this because they don't have a notion of picking something up necessarily. You have to talk to them in terms of how to move their arm to grasp the pitcher and then to move that pitcher up off of the table and over top eventually of the cup that you're pouring the the contents into. And this is a very painstaking process. And even still, even when we're deliberately trying to do this, it's still incredibly hard Mm -hmm. uh, to take language down to that low level that we need to do uh, uh, skill execution. So we have one tool, right, which is actual physical demonstrations, which is very specific and tells us everything we need to know uh, about very specific conditions. And then we have language, which is very broad and tells us higher level things about the activity. And so what we're doing in, in our lab is we're trying to fuse these things together. And one way we're doing this is by having people narrate while they're giving demonstrations. So they narrate aloud important things about the tasks or the steps that they're doing uh, while they're showing the robot their, their trajectory, their uh, example demonstration. And so in the case of picking up a pitcher of water and pouring it out, it might be important to narrate that as you pick up the pitcher of water that it must be kept upright. So I'm going to pick up the pitcher and keep it upright, then I'm going to move it over top of the cup, and then I'm going to turn it over and pour the contents into the cup. And so what we do from that, uh, from that semantic signal is to try to extract constraints mm-hmm. over the task space. So for example, mm-hmm. even if we don't necessarily commit to a strategy for picking up the pitcher or moving it around in the air over uh, the table it was on, we can still now know that, okay, the uh, pose of this object needs to be upright. Otherwise, the, the task is probably going to be considered a failure. And that constraint is going to hold from the moment that the person narrated it until they violate it intentionally by tilting the, uh, the pitcher over and pouring the contents out. And so even in this very simple example, um, what we can find is that we can extract meaningful constraints uh, such as that pitcher must be upright or don't tilt until you're above the vessel that you're pouring it into. Uh, and then we can use that to kind of overcome limitations of the skill model to provide this shared expectation that regardless of what's going to happen with the model underneath that I'm perhaps sampling my, my trajectory executions from, I know it won't violate these constraints because that's uh, an that's essential a, a, a component now of the skill execution of the robot.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And in your experiment, did you how, how did you... Represent these constraints, I guess. How, or how right. did you? How did you? Did you recognize the cup?
1: Did you? Rec- yes. So the state space that we used for these uh, these particular algorithms, uh, we gave the system the uh, sixed-off pose of. The objects in the in the scenario, mm-hmm. uh, along with an identifier, so every object consists of basically seven numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, the robots uh, pose information, and the constraints were represented as just generic boolean classifiers. So a state mm-hmm. goes, a state of the world goes in, and then uh, true or false comes out of it. Gotcha. So in the case cut of Cut right. upright, you can you have a parametrizable um, planning predicate essentially. Yep, uh, and so we can just evaluate those. Gotcha. How would you? generalize this to more tasks? Right, so it really comes down to what your language is, and so this is one of the really difficult things in working with natural language is that it's this very complicated manifold that we're projecting everything onto mm-hmm. and so uh, we could come up with a set of fairly general predicates so uh, spatial relations between objects tend to be very common and generalizable across tasks, so mm-hmm. A is on top of B, X is next to Y etc, etc, etc um, whereas we can also supplement it with more task-specific things. So um, the cup is empty versus full versus you know, some mm-hmm. uh, parameterization of, of fullness. And we can just add these predicates into just some large uh, dictionary of terms that the system would have available mm-hmm. to it. Gotcha. Would you ever use this to make inferences? So if
2: I, so assuming you have some good way to process speech, now I'm going to say I'm going to fill up the cup. Now this maybe implies that the cup was empty or at least not full?
1: Yes, so one thing that we're trying to do right now, um, so we published our first work on this uh, at IROS in 2018, Mm -hmm. um, where we called this method concept-constrained learning from demonstration. Now, the next step of this is trying to move beyond just requiring the human to provide a good narration to Mm us, uh, but now work jointly with them to try to infer which constraints hold over the task, and Mm -hmm. work with them by both listening to their signal and watching their trajectory to propose which sets of constraints may exist over which parts of the skill execution.
2: Gotcha.
1: Um, which naturally uh, transitions itself into uh, broader problems of skill segmentation and trajectory alignment across demonstrations. So if I do something very quickly and something very slowly... It's the, and it's the same skill. I'd want to align those properly so that I can learn the, the proper beginnings of each of those together, even if one constitutes more frames than the other. Right? So, mm-hmm. so alignment is a big problem. And then figuring out which feature spaces are important at various segments of a task execution is also important. And we think that um, deriving these constraints from motion and talking to people uh, or involving them in that process is one way that we can solve this. Mm-hmm. And then how does that tie back to uh, safety really quick? So if we're able to present to people information about the constraints over the skills that they're teaching the robot, then it gives them more information about the things that the robot will or won't do and uh, also hints at sort of the underlying nature of the task that's being asked uh, of the robot itself. So in the pouring example that you'd really want uh, your, your agent to know, your robot to know that keeping the cup up or the vessel upright, the pitcher upright is important.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so if you didn't have that, then, well, you don't have any guarantees about what the robot's going to do, say, with its wrist rotation as it's, uh, as it's carrying this object, particularly if maybe an obstacle comes up during execution that wasn't present during training. So now you have a trajectory optimization problem, and if you're not including that upright constraint in your optimization process, then it's highly unlikely that it's going to be preserved in the uh, actual final action that it takes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so this was one project um, that gets towards safety, or exploring safety for That's right. collaboration. Uh, you also
1: mentioned one for being risk-aware. That's yeah. right. So one of the things that we're really interested in uh, with respect to safety is... Robots that can learn from ex- their experiences within the world and build models of those experiences. And so one way, one place where this manifests is in social navigation. So uh, this is navigating amongst people. So one thing that we're looking at is providing robots with the ability to create uh, models of how people navigate around them. So these are contextual uh, models that enable the robot to make better predictions about how people are going to be moving around it, mm-hmm. which it can then condition its own motion planning decisions off of. And we want this robot to be able to have uh, this evolving set of models. So the first time the robot encounters somebody who's um, running to the coffee shop with their empty mug of coffee, right, we, want it to, we want that robot to be able to learn about that particular type of agent in the world Right? Because there's no way that we can predict all the different types of agents before we deploy a robot into a, into a space. And so we want to give the robot the tools to be able to make sense of the world that it's interacting in. And so this plays into safety considerations because uh, we, can, we might consider the scenario of going into a crowded coffee shop, ordering a coffee, and then walking out without spilling scalding hot coffee on the people around us. And so humans are quite good at this. Uh, Even though this is an intractably hard problem, right? So there there are a number of people. You don't have great models for any of these people necessarily. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. And there's risk because you're carrying this coffee cup full of hot liquid and you're somehow solving this planning problem that gets you out of that situation uh, relatively unscathed. Mm -hmm. And so we would like robots to be able to, to exploit these models that they're able to build of the world that they're interacting in to make better predictions about what people around them are going to do, and then use those predictions to condition its motion plan. So in the case of walking through a crowded coffee shop with a cup of coffee in your hand, one strategy that people might take if they're unsure of uh, whether or not someone's going to bump into them is that they'll take the arm that's not holding the coffee cup and form kind of a bumper around their cup. And they're not doing this because... Uh, they're hoping somebody you know, hits that. They're doing it as a way to reduce the harm in case a failure occurs. So somebody who's not paying attention and they back up into your arm, sure, it's a little bit awkward and uncomfortable, but that reward is a lot better than getting hot coffee spilled on you for committing the same infraction. And so we have this evidence that people are able to take their models of uh, prediction for others and then incorporate them into our motion plans to, uh, to get through a space while simultaneously considering these potentially unavoidable risks, but then taking steps to mitigate them, to reduce their severity. And so this project is that's uh, funded by the National Science Foundation is focused on letting robots learn from experience in a self-supervised way and then incorporating those models into its motion planning so that it can accomplish whatever its goals are in a more safe manner. Uh, Taking into account that some failures may be unavoidable and in those cases the robot should be doing everything it can to minimize the expected harm should that actually occur.
2: (laughs) Now, How do you represent this? How do you represent the path planning and then how do you represent the other agents, what they're doing and where you expect they'll move?
1: Absolutely. So in this case, we're we're modeling people in a, a very simple state space. So we're not really accounting for, uh, say, their upper limb movement. So people have a position and a radius, essentially. And... What we're representing is their uh, this generative model of where we think that they will be headed next yeah. based on a number of features such as um, mo- mo- uh, motion features, right? So... Mm. Um, Their inertia, where are they, where where have they been? But we condition that on factors in the environment, such as which room of the building are they in, what time of day is it, how crowded is it. Hmm. Um, We also add in contextual features such as what are they carrying. So, in uh, an example I gave, um, if you have a coffee cup and it's empty, then it seems reasonable that they might be headed to a coffee uh, machine or a coffee shop to fill that cup. Because or trash or trash <laughs> exactly and so uh, but it's it's also potentially less likely um, that they're just going to stand there forever with with this or, or any number of other things right so it's unlikely maybe that they're gonna that they're carrying their empty mug to the printer for example. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we can use this not necessarily as definitive proof, but rather as evidence that they might be taking a particular course of action. And then the robot can use that within its own uh, planning model right? to, to evaluate its, its uh, objective function for its optimization process.
2: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you represent the person. They have a XY position
1: and a radius. And you can infer velocity from this, so where they're going. Sort of, yeah. So it's a bit more complicated because we don't necessarily have the ability to see everyone all the time. Yeah. And so there, there's uncertainty and uncertainty in our sensors, mm-hmm. um, and also it's not. Computationally feasible for us to be planning individual models for every single person in a scene. So, again, if we have a crowded coffee shop, yeah. it's probably not that productive for us to look at this as uh, a sea of individuals. Okay. Uh, and so, Is that how do you represent it? So, in our, in our uh, formulation, we have both coarse and fine models. Okay. And so, uh, people that we deem as contextually relevant right, for the motion plan that we're doing, we'll uh, simulate that we're, those ones forward. Exactly, and they get a fine model, so we want a, a bit higher fidelity about what they're going to do, whereas for the rest of them we apply a coarse model that kind of treats the uh, the overall scene as a blob and uh, expands out in, in a slightly more informed way than, yeah. than just you know, formally, but um, we don't put a lot of detail or... or um, or focus on that particular model. But we fuse these things together, these signals, Mm -hmm. uh, in order to create the eventual cost map the robot's using Mm -hmm. for its planning through time problem.
2: Gotcha. Very cool.
1: And then, so, have you deployed this? Have you tried it out? How did it work? So, we are in the first year of our NRI for this. And so, we have um, begun... um, implementing basically all of the infrastructure for this and we anticipate deploying this robot in the engineering center at the university of colorado boulder um, to more or less be wandering around there all day every day um, for the next considerably long period of time uh, awesome. and so we're using a Kinova movo for this um, it's a uh, bimanual mobile manipulator with an omnidirectional base uh, telescoping torso, it's uh, outfitted with a variety of sensors, uh, laser sensors, depth cameras, etc. Mm-hmm. Do you use any external sensors? Not for this project. So um, one of the, the big motivations for this is explicitly that the robot can do all of its learning in a self-supervised way. Mm. And so we have to build in um, a lot of signals, uh, perhaps social signals even, for the robot to be able to uh, interpret model mismatch, uh, the, or at least the severity of it. For example, if somebody runs away from you, that's worse than if they just step beside you, presumably. Mm-hmm. And so we have to give the robot some coarse notion of um, goodness or badness of um, you know, model imp- uh, uh, prediction. Mm-hmm. Right? And so uh, with that, it should be able to presumably build better models through its own world experiences and then be able to leverage those to perform tasks in human populated environments with mm-hmm. a more nuanced um, expectation of risk and mitigation strategy for that
2: gotcha are you uh, so you mentioned empty coffee cup um, are you doing anything where you're looking at the human in context other than their XY
1: position? and radius. So we are hoping to also apply this, this same work into tabletop um, human-robot collaboration tasks. So an example where that might be applied is if you are doing an assembly task, mm-hmm. right, a collaborative assembly task with a robot at a table, mm-hmm. then one thing that might be helpful right, is that the robot might be doing something dangerous. Let's mm-hmm. say the robot is, say, soldering something. And so you have a manufacturing arm and you're, you're sharing a table with it and it starts to solder the configuration of the arm might matter quite a lot there. So perhaps a minimum energy uh, uh, motion plan that the robot comes up with will just have the arm protruding straight out from the robot's base and then um, soldering right in place versus coming up with a configuration of the arm that again uh, produces something that looks like a bumper uh, where it's shielding the human from the dangerous workspace because it knows that the human's motion model for, its, for the human's hands that are moving through the space might encounter that area, that danger area, um, unless there was some disincentivization for that. And so the robot kind of awkwardly orienting its arm um, so as to shield the person from, say, the solder tip would disincentivize the person from moving into that particularly dangerous region of space. And so we're hoping to be able to take this same technology and generalize it beyond just, say, social navigation-aware, risk-aware motion planning, but also to to tabletop tasks and and other domains. Mm -hmm. And so talking a bit about safety, backing up a little bit,
2: what's kind of the future of robots from the safety
1: perspective? Where can you imagine this field going? So tackling this problem of safety is the most critical one I see right now in terms of getting robots into the real world and uh, actually deploying all of the fantastic research advances that have been coming out over the past decade or or more. Uh, And this is the big barrier, right? So we can't put these things out into the world until we're reasonably certain that they're going to behave and they're going to behave in manners that are acceptable to us. And so... The current state of the art in this is uh, in industry is quite primitive compared to the assumptions that we've been making in the labs uh, in terms of our ability to detect humans, to predict what they're doing, uh, and just the amount of instrumentation right, required to do a lot of the uh, the lab experiments that have been going on, and so we're now. At a point where things like visual perception are starting to become very effective and and, and work and um, the sensor costs are coming down and becoming more capable. And so with all of this, there's this unique confluence of events where uh, the the pricing is right, the technology is starting to become mature. And so now we're at a point where maybe we can start to mass produce and deploy these things, except if they're not safe, it's never going to work. No one's going to trust that on their manufacturing floor outside of a cage. Right, and that's going to eliminate more or less all of the use cases that we've been hyping for the past you know, decade or so. And so uh, I see the, this, I don't know, overcoming these safety challenges by establishing shared expectations and, and some manner of explainability into these models uh, as key to achieving that reality. Thank you.
0: And that's the end of today's interview. As always, there's lots more content on our website at robohub.org forward slash podcast, where you'll also find more information about becoming a patron of the podcast. By becoming a patron, you will ensure that we can continue to bring you the latest from robotics labs, events and conferences across the globe, including the major conferences IROS and ICRAS. So if you can spare just a few dollars a month, the cost of a bottle of water or a cup of coffee, we'd be delighted if you supported us by becoming a patron. Check out robohub.org forward slash podcast for more information. And catch our next episode in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Collaborate. With Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.